Amen. You can be seated. Well, good morning. I am excited to be here with you this morning. I'm excited to be preaching. I, I want to thank Hayden and our praise team uh, for being able to step up during these uh, next six weeks. Hayden's going to be leading our worship uh, while Pastor Steve is on sabbatical uh, to allow me to kind of be able to focus on, on preaching, which I like to focus on when I'm preaching. This week, <laughs> we had, I had a couple of distractions, including that Arkansas Razorback game last night. And I was like, man, I really just need to sit down and focus on what we're, we're talking about this morning. And I was able to get that time um, for sure. But I'm excited about what, we, what God has for us this morning. But first, just a few announcements. I want to remind our ladies that our women's Bible study is starting up this upcoming Wednesday night at 6.30. Um, so make sure that you're here. And you can also, if you come an hour before that, at 5.30, um, we have a great meal prepared for everybody uh, back in the Family Life Center. And that is $5 for adults and $2.50 for any kids or students. So you don't want to miss out on that. That's the cheapest meal you can get around, and it's one of the best ones as well. So $5.30 for that. Uh, women's Bible study will start um, at 6.30, and then also in here, Hayden will be leading the rest of us through a study in Genesis. And let me tell you something. If you aren't going to that women's Bible study, you want to be here for this study in Genesis. Uh, we started this past week. He went through days 1 through 6 of the creation story, uh, did a spectacular job. But this week we're coming up on day seven when God rests. Um, and I know he, he is going to have a really good word for us. Um, also, I mentioned this last week, but remember these, these, this past week and this week, we have been buying shoes for our VIP students at the middle school. If you want to be a part of that, which I know so many of you do, uh, you, you can donate. Uh, you can donate directly towards that if you mark your tithes and offerings as school outreach. You can put those um, there in the black box in the back. On each side of the sanctuary, uh, you can drop your tithes and offerings in that black box with a lock on it um, right as you, as you leave this morning. Um, and then finally, the final announcement, and we're going to say this every week for the next six weeks, whether it's coming from me or coming from, from Pastor Daniel, don't call Pastor Steve. <laughs> he has taken a six-week sabbatical, as you all know by now. Um, he did a great job kind of introducing that to us a couple weeks ago. But please, if you need anything, anything at all from the church, if you need to let us know about something, if you have an emergency or if you know some, somebody that needs prayer, uh, contact one of us, uh, me, Pastor Daniel, Amanda, Katie. We would love to take your call and help you out. Just by no means let me contact Pastor Steve if he needs to know, and you can contact us first. We want to make sure that he um, is enjoying this sabbatical as he kind of takes a step back for a few weeks and gets the rest and recuperation that he deserves. Amen. And I can tell you that he, you can be rest assured that he is enjoying his sabbatical so far. They were in Florida last week. And I mean, I, can, I tell you what, I can tell you the second that they leave for vacation because I immediately start getting pictures of everything they put in their mouth. Any, <laughs> any food at all, we get a picture of it hey, our, on our family group text. Uh, so we got plenty of pictures of donuts and hamburgers and, and whatever else uh, over the last week. They're having a good time, and I can tell you that I think that he is getting that rest that he talked about in his sermon two weeks ago. Does any, anybody remember the word that he used? Say la, that's right. Yeah, a few of you got it. Say la, S-E-L-A-H. If you missed out on that sermon, I would encourage you to go check that out. Um, he, he does a really good job of explaining what a sabbatical is, um, why he's taking it, and, and what his goals are for going through that. But let's forget about him for just a moment, because he's not here. 
And uh, while the pastor's away, our staff is going to play, and we have been this week. <laughs> no, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. But we, we have things to do right here while he's away, amen? amen. And our, our goal as a staff, our goal that we communicated even to the church board in the last board meeting before Pastor Steve's sabbatical, is that we're not just going to try to survive this six-week sabbatical. We're not just going to try to make it through uh, and, and just get through it as best we can. And there's definitely that temptation to do so. Um, usually when uh, the senior pastor is on vacation or even when uh, Daniel or, or myself or one of the other staff members are out, I'll be honest, we just try to make it through that Sunday. That, that Sunday or maybe the next one, until our, we do the best that we can until our staff is back together again sometimes. But we knew that going into this six-week stretch that we weren't going to be able to just get by until Pastor Steve was able to return at the end of the six weeks. So instead, we set this goal during this sabbatical for our pastor, that we would set this church up to be in a better place than when he left it. And to do that, we knew that during this sabbatical, our church, Greenbar Nazarene, was going to have to seek the same rest and the same recuperation that he's seeking while he's away. And as I, I, the weeks leading up to it, as I was thinking about this, as, as we were talking about rest and about, uh, the word, about what a sabbatical is, I was kind of surfing Twitter probably in the wee hours of the morning, and I saw a reminder that immediately made me stop and say, there it is. That's what we need. That's exactly what, um, what we need to hear. In, in one quote, was the whole of what I felt our church needs to accomplish during six weeks. And it said this, it's from Pastor Grant Castleberry in Raleigh, North Carolina. And his quote said this, The Christian doctrine is not that Christ makes you better, but that Christ makes you new. Amen? The Christian doctrine is not that Christ makes you better, but that Christ makes you new. Our world teaches progression but Christianity has always taught transformation. Amen? And that church is what I want for us. What our staff, what our board wants for us, what Pastor Steve wants for us during the six weeks for us to be renewed. Now, if you have your Bibles with you, you can start turning with me to Romans chapter 6. That's where we're going to be. Throughout the rest of this sabbatical for Pastor Steve... We are going to allow Christ to renew us and to renew the church. We are going to allow Jesus to transform us. And we are going to remind ourselves that we are called to be a new creation. I would really encourage you, it's, on, it's online, to go back and listen to this past Wednesday night's Bible study um, from Hayden. He did an excellent job talking about how we were made in the image of, Christ, of God. That humanity was made in the image of God. Now, he hasn't gotten there yet, but we know that sin corrupted that image. But we are called to be, as Christians, a new creation. To be restored, to be transformed, to be renewed into that original image of God that we were created to be. And this new creation, this renewal, is going to take place in three steps over the next four weeks. And those three steps that we're going to take as a church, as the body of Christ, we're going to model after this phrase, which has been recited since the very beginning of the Christian church, and it's this. 
Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Let's say that together. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Our renewal takes place in these three phases. Death, resurrection, and a future hope. And this morning, I know that you are all so excited to find out that we are talking about death today. So let's go to our scripture. We're looking at Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. This is what Paul says. What then are we to say? Should we continue in sin in order that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin go on living in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him by baptism into death, so that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Verse 5. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be destroyed and we might no longer be enslaved to sin. For whoever has died is freed from sin. But if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Let's pray. God, this morning we come before you We come before this passage from Paul seeking restoration, seeking renewal, seeking to to become a new creation. And God, this morning we're going to struggle with this difficult concept of death. And God, I pray that you will make your grace available to us, that we will enter into this conversation, that we will enter into this topic with a tender heart, with an, with an open heart, God, with a heart ready to seek that renewal in all of us, not just those of us who may not proclaim the name of Christ, God, but in each and every one of us in the church. And we ask these things in your name. Amen. Okay. Can we, for once, here in, in church, we're all friends here, we're all, we're all buddies, Can we leave all of our pride at the door? Can we leave all of our need, and I'm the worst, need to feel smarter than everybody else? Can we leave that at the door? Can we leave all of that at at the door this morning and and admit to ourselves and admit to each other that 99% of the time when we're reading from Paul, we have no earthly idea what he's talking about? Okay? I mean... Who writes this way? And I know I I use a different translation of the Bible. I use the NRSV usually when I'm preaching. But uh, it's not just the translation. Paul, and we'll talk about this in just a second, Paul would actually, throughout his letters to the churches, would make up words. He, he, would, he would coin new words or new phrases um, when, it, when he was writing his letters. And so when it's, after it's been translated um, into English, it kind of reads like, an academic that's writing a theology book, but they really don't want you to understand what's going on, you know? 
And so sometimes you can, you can read it. And I don't preach a lot from Paul, and I'll tell you why. I had to read this passage of Scripture 475 times before I really made it all the way through eight verses. <laughs> and sometimes it just, he has really, really good stuff and deep theology, but sometimes it can be tough for us to really understand. And so getting past this, I, I want to be able to set this text up for us a little bit, and I, I want us to be able to take some big general concepts from what Paul is trying to tell us here in this passage, because there's, there's some important stuff here. In this passage, Paul is responding to a claim that he first explains in chapter 3, verse 8. And the claim is this, And why not say, as some people slander us by saying, Let us do evil so that good may come. He's also uh, responding to people who may twist his words around in chapter 5, right before this passage when he says, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. That's a very familiar passage to us, I'm sure. And the slander that these people are making um, is, is this, if our salvation is based only on faith, which is what Paul claims, then why should we obey the law? If our salvation is based only on faith, then why uh, do good works? Can't we sin and, and still have faith? And, and won't sinning actually allow for more grace if it's true that where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more? And so Paul responds here in verses 1 and 2 to these, uh, these slanders. He said, should we continue to sin so that grace may be present? And in verse 2 he says, by no means. And he has an exclamation point then there. By no means. So that's just setting up about what Paul is responding to and sometimes when you're preaching on Paul, one of the challenges is figuring out how far to go back. Because here in, in chapter 6, he's responding to something in chapter 3. But sometimes in chapter 12, he's responding to something that he wrote in chapter 1. So you really have to wrestle with how far do we go back when explaining the context. But we could really take, so we could really take a deep dive into every single one of these verses. We could really just, I mean, dive in. We could get into the deep end with all this. We could break it down line by line, and we could try to force understanding onto ourselves. But we have to remember that this letter, and I, remember, I remind you of this every time I preach, every time that we open the Bible, this letter was written to a specific church, the Romans. It was written to a specific context of the church in Rome, and it was written in a specific language that none of us speak today. And there have been plenty of people who are a lot smarter than I am, um, academics and theologians who have gone and have broken this down line by line, and I read some of them, and, and really it, I only accomplished in confusing myself more about the specifics of this passage. So I really want us to take one big general concept from these eight verses that we read from Paul. Here's what's important here in these eight verses. And if you're taking notes, you, you can write this down. If you aren't taking notes, your phone section has a note section, or your phone has a note section. Take that out, and I want you to write this down. Here's what's important here in Romans 6, verses 1 through 8. To be renewed, first we must die with Christ. To be renewed, first we must die with Christ. Now, there's a phrase that I use all the time. About 60 of you took a class that Melanie and I used to do in our home um, about the Nazarene Church, and one day we hope to start it up again. But if you took it, you, you heard me use this phrase almost every week in that class. And it's an important phrase, because so often I think that we can look at the story of the Bible. We can look at the Old Testament, 
We can look at the life of Christ. We can look at the gospel story. We can even look at the letters of Paul and think that all of this happened for us. Christ died for us. He was resurrected for us. He is coming again for us. But the gospel message, truly, who we are as Christians, our identity does not lie in the sole fact, yes it is important, but it does not lie in the sole fact that these things were done for us. Our identity as Christian lies in the fact, as Christians, lies in the fact that we must also participate in these things. We participate in the death, the resurrection, and the future coming of Christ. Paul very clearly in this passage states that this is the case. There in verse 3 he says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we have been buried with him by baptism into death. And there in verse 4 is the first time in this passage that we see one of Paul's made-up words. In verse 4, when Paul writes the word buried, the Greek word that he actually uses is synetophemen. And I hope that I said that right. And this adding of the the sin, the prefix, the S-Y-N, is something that Paul did all the time. He did it in Galatians. He did it in First and Second Corinthians. Dozens of times throughout throughout the letters of the of, of that Paul wrote to several different churches, he uses this this prefix sin s y n and adds it on to another word. And so it must be important. And the best parallel that we can draw today would be using the prefix co c o. So instead of just saying that that we have been buried, Paul made up a word by adding this sin prefix to say that we were co-buried with Christ. Later on in verse 6, when he uses the word crucified, he did the same thing. He he uses that S-Y-N prefix to make it actually say that we were co-crucified with Christ. And as I said, he, he doesn't just do it here in Romans, he doesn't just do it here in this passage, but it's something that he did dozens of times throughout his writings in the New Testament to the churches. And the, the purpose of that, and the reason that I pointed out, the reason that I pointed out is because he went out of his way to communicate to something, something to the church. And what he was purposefully, and what he was intentionally communicating to these churches that he was writing to, is that we are to have a unity with Christ in these things. He went so far out of his way to communicate that unity that he actually was making up words. And so Paul isn't saying that, Paul is saying here that it isn't enough to simply believe that Christ died for you. It isn't enough to to believe that he was then resurrected for you. It isn't enough to believe that one day he's coming again for you because that's selfishness. Instead, all of these things were done so that we as the church could then participate in them, so that we could do these things as well, so that you could die, so that you could be resurrected, so that you could participate in the next coming of Christ into the world. The gospel message is not a selfish gift from God. It's a message, it's a story that we are called to take and make our own. And today, the first step is we die. 
Now, this is not necessarily a, a physical death, one where we must be martyred in the way that Christ was, but instead, it is a death to who we once were. Paul says it clearly here in Romans, when we are saved and when we are baptized, we die to sin. He says that if we are saved through Christ Jesus, then it is unthinkable that we would continue to go on sinning. Here in verses 6 and 7, he says that we are to be willing participants in the death of Christ. And I'll read this for you again, verse 6. We know that our old self, and this is actually better translated to be, we know that the old person we once were was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be destroyed. And we might no longer be enslaved to sin. For whoever has died is freed from sin. Now that clarification. The old person that that we once were is key. To die to sin means that to us that old person is gone. Who we once were before we accepted the gospel of Jesus Christ as our own was was a completely different person than, than who we are now. And now, in our baptism, in our salvation from Christ, the old sinful person is no more. Amen? The person that once defined us. We were, when we were caught up in selfishness and in sinfulness, that person has died. That person whose master was sin is no more, and who we once were is not coming back. We now have a freedom over that which once ruled over us. Now, there are so many scriptures, so many scriptures that point to this same topic about this death to sin and our old selves. And I want to just read a, a short list of some of my favorites. Um, Galatians chapter 5, verses 24 says, And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Now that, of course, is Paul, but this is Peter. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. He himself bore our sins and his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds we are healed. And then again, uh, this is a topic throughout Romans. Romans 12, uh, verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, and this is probably the most famous, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and pleasing to God, which is your spiritual worship. And finally, from Christ himself, in Mark chapter 8, verse 35, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Now, I really don't like it when uh, pastors do what I just did right there. They uh, throw a million Bible verses on the screen. They read them off really quickly, all completely out of context, um, and, and they, they, they try to kind of prove their own opinions by throwing up a bunch of one-liners on the screen, but uh, this sermon can only be so long, and uh, what I want you, wanted to show you, not necessarily, I would encourage you to look those verses up and read them in the context that they were written in, but what I want to, to show you this morning is that this, this fact, this death to self, is not unique to Paul. It is not unique to the book of Romans. It is, it is not unique to any solitary book of the Bible. It is unique only as the central message of the gospel. Many different authors in many different books thought that this was important for the church to know. To become new 
we must first lay ourselves down as living sacrifices. That means not only giving up sin, but giving up who we are, were as that old person. Which means we give up ambitions. We give up worldly hopes. We give up our passions and our pride. And we make space for Christ to resurrect us as a new person. But that resurrection part is coming up in a couple weeks. And as I was thinking about and studying this concept of dying with Christ through Paul and some of these other scriptures, man, I kept, I kept being so tempted to jump so quickly into that next phase, that next phase of, of resurrection. Because that's, that's the exciting part, right? That's the one that we can really get excited about. The resurrection is coming. Even around Easter time, we kind of just put up with Good Friday because we say, and Sunday's coming, right? So we kind of just, we put, we put up with Good Friday because we know that Sunday's coming. We know the re- resurrection is coming. And so, so easily we can be quick to skip over that part about Christ's death. But I was challenged while writing this to, to stop and to first sit with death. Also, I knew that this needs to be a three-part series, so I had to stretch this puppy out. <laughs> no, um, well, kind of. But, <laughs> but I do think that so often we readily skip over this part. Um, maybe it's because we view this and we view the resurrection as both happen- hap- happening instantaneously in a moment for us, And what I mean by that is we go, we say a prayer at the altar, and we stand up, and the old is gone and the new is here. We stand up a new creation. Death and resurrection, all in one. That's what happens. And so we view both of these things happening in an instant. And then when we're baptized, which symbolizes this death and resurrection, we go down, and nobody really holds them down, where they instantly come up, and boom, it's done death and resurrection, all in one, in an instant. And so we never really get the time to sit in the uncomfortableness of death in our salvation. Now, I was actually given an opportunity to do this at a retreat that I was on several years ago. And if I remember correctly, it was weird. And it was uncomfortable. And they used the word mourn, which I thought was a weird word to use in that instance. It's a word that we use regularly when talking about death, but it just kind of felt wrong to use it, to mourn something that personally I was glad to be rid of, right? But if we take this process, if we take this week by week, and we take it step by step, and we don't move on to the resurrection before we get done dealing with death, then between now and two weeks from now, when we talk about resurrection, what are we left with? What were the disciples left with between Friday and Sunday? Nothing. And so if we struggle with this, 
If we really try to take on the concept of death without skipping over to the, the process of, of, or, or the part about resurrection, then we are left with nothing. And I hope that I'm making sense here, but I, I want to illustrate my point. I want us to try out a little exercise. I'm going to read the crucifixion passage for us. And as, as I read it, I want you to put yourself there with Christ. I want you to imagine yourselves there as he's mocked, as he's led towards the cross, and as he's crucified. But more importantly than just putting yourself there in the moment, I want you to begin to imagine what it looks like for you to be crucified with him. If this morning we're going to die to sin and to ourselves, then what are the qualities of our old self that are dying? What are the things that you won't go back to? What are the actions that, that you're going to let go of if you're dying to sin and to yourself as Christ is crucified? And then, when I read the passage, I'm going to stop when Jesus takes his last breath. And what I want us to do is to sit for a moment in that tension. What are we left with? Now, this may be wild. I have really no idea how you're going to respond to this. It may be way too out there. But the pastor's gone, so we're going to try it. So here's what I want you to do. You can close your eyes, but I want you to make yourself comfortable. If you don't want to close your eyes, you can look at the ceiling, look at the floor, look at the stained glass behind me. I want you to make yourself comfortable and put yourself in the moment of the crucifixion. Let's all take a deep breath in and a deep breath out. This is Mark 15, verses 16 through 37. The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! Again and again, they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him out to crucify him. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it, and they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, 
They cast lots to see what each would get. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you were going to destroy the temple and build it in three days. So come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. And at noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. And with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. Do you feel that? The tension? The emotion? The suspense? It feels a bit more permanent when we stop the passage right there, doesn't it? Now, I've been to a lot of funerals in my day. Like a lot. I grew up as a pastor's kid, and we went to a lot of funerals. And I've seen people mourn in a lot of different ways. I've seen people get angry and throw things at the casket, and I've seen laughters and and celebrations of life. But reading this particular passage, in light of my own death to who I once was, kind of elicits this unique kind of sorrow. It's not necessarily a a sadness for what was lost, but instead, maybe a sadness for what was, right? I mean... My death to sin includes a long list of things like arrogance and selfishness. I think back to how I've treated people or how I've even ignored those who clearly needed help. And it's not a feeling of guilt necessarily. I don't want anybody to leave here this morning feeling guilty. But it is sorrow. It's sadness. And maybe... Knowing what's coming in a couple of weeks, knowing the resurrection is on the way, it's a sense of confusion because 
We've just really never sat down and done this before. And this confusion is where I want us to sit for the next two weeks until we begin again with the resurrection. Now, you know that I love to give homework at the end of a message. I've been in school for forever. Homework is my natural language. And so I love to give homework. I love to give you something to take with you and do that will allow you to continue thinking about the message after you walk out of here and maybe even, heaven forbid, apply it to your life. I know, it's just crazy talk. <clears throat> and this time, here's what I want our homework to be. Here's, here's what I want you to do over the next two weeks. Between now and two weeks from this Sunday, that's September 26th, three times, three times I want you to sit down with the crucifixion passage in a quiet place. Now, I read from Mark chapter 15, verses 16 through 37, but you could look at any of the gospel passages. I might actually recommend John the most, if you aren't going to look at Mark. And all I'm, I'm asking for is like 10 minutes. I read that passage really slowly, with a lot of pauses, and it took me five. So it should take you about three minutes to read that. And when you've read that passage to yourself, I want you to use the next five minutes of your ten minutes in silence. And I want you to write down a list of three things. Three characteristics of the old you that died with Christ. And as you stop there at the verse where Christ dies, sit in that uncomfortableness, sit in that tension. And the reason I ask you to do this, a lot of you may say, well, Hunter, I'm already saved. I've already done this. Dead to self, alive in Christ. Paul goes on to tell us throughout Romans and throughout um, other, other uh, letters that he wrote to the churches that we know that we are to continually die to Christ. Yes, salvation happens in an instant, but we are called to continually commit ourselves back to Jesus Christ, our Lord. This is something that we are called to do regularly. So, if you've been saved for a week or 60 years, I would encourage you to do this activity three times in the next two weeks. And here's why I want you to do that. Because on October 3rd, we're going to take communion together as a church. I want you to put that date in your calendar, October 3rd. It's three weeks from now. Make sure that you are here. Bring your friends and bring your family because that Sunday is going to be the culmination of our renewal as we take communion together. And what I want you to do on October 3rd is to bring that list with you. Bring that list of the characteristics of the old you that died with Christ and the crucifixion. I want you to be able to walk in here on October 3rd with something written down or put in your phone, something that you can look at that says, the old, this is the old me that has died. But I've been resurrected with Christ. I have been made anew, a slave to sin no more. 
and I am patiently waiting for His coming again. Amen? Christ has died. Christ is risen. And Christ will come again. Let's say that one more time together. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Let's pray. God, as we sit with this uncomfortableness of death the next couple weeks, God, I pray that you will fill us with your grace. God, this is going to be a tough exercise and a long time, two weeks. But God, as we read about the crucifixion of your son, may we be reminded that he died not only to be to not only for our salvation but God that we may die with him to be free of sin. God and as as we pause and stop as your son takes his final breath. God, I pray that we release all of who we once were to you. God, that that death may be permanent and something that we come back to time and time again to remind ourselves of your mercy and your love for us. God, I do pray. I do pray that over the next two weeks, you make us uncomfortable. That you make us just squirm a little bit. God, that we don't just skip over to the good part, but we set in mourning for what was. We thank you for who you are, who you were, and who you're going to be, God. We ask these things in your name. Amen. Amen. Y'all have a great week. Thank you.